Hey guys, I forgot to mention this at the end of the show, which is surprising because we're talking a lot about asking questions in the LinkedIn group. But next Friday is our first Friday Q&A, first Friday question and answer session with myself and Mark LaCour. But let's be honest, Mark is the one answering the questions. <laughs> but whatever questions you have, if you're new to oil and gas, if you've been around for a long time and you're stuck with a problem and you're trying to figure out a way around it or whatever, whatever the case might be, go over to triberocket.com forward slash QA. You'll see a form right there and you can submit your question and we'd love to have you. Got some complaints about the plugin I was using for voicemail, so I turned that off on mobile. But if you're on a desktop, you can also leave us a voicemail. And we haven't gotten any yet. We've got plenty of written questions, but if you leave us a voicemail, we'll play that on the show as well. So that's at triberocket.com forward slash QA. Enjoy the show. James Hahn II. And I'm Mark McCourt. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. June 12th, 2015, I turned 35. And Friday, October 30th, 2015, This Week in Oil and Gas turns 35. Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Wow, 35 episodes. That's awesome. Don't we, uh, I, I didn't, we're, that's got to be more than six months by now, right? <laughs> yeah, it has to be, right? It's, sometimes it seems like it's been six years. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah, yeah. We're loving it. I'm James Hahn II from TribeRocket.com. Um, we are a sales-driven marketing firm. We help brands tell the right story to the right people at the right time in the marketplace. Basically, the question you need to ask yourself is, is your brand story. So when you send your sales team out and they tell your story, does that resonate in the marketplace? And is there a gap between what you're saying and what you should be saying? And that's what we help cure. How about you, Mark? And I'm Mark with MotorPoint.com. We're an oil and gas focused market research company. We actually do the pre-work <laughs> before <laughs> James actually crafts a message. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, Two for one, perfect uh, synergy between our two companies. Yes, lots of synergy and and lots of stories to get through. Um, I, I, I was it was trouble whittling them down, but I think I, I have a good collection to start with. So let's go with this. Was a very intriguing headline: Iran's man in New York is hunting for billions of dollars. Yeah, uh, just an awesome story, and it's, uh, it's a lot of facts here, which you know I love. So uh, this is a, talking about um, Hamad Biglari, who is an uh, Iranian by birth. Um, during the Shah Revolution, which I believe was 1979, I think a year or two before that, he came over to the U.S. He's educated in the U.S. And we talked about in past shows about how Iran has no infrastructure because of all the years of strife and warfare, and they need investment by other companies countries to get the oil out of the ground, which they're sitting on these big reservoirs. And this is an article about how um, Hamad is the point man for the uh, Iranian, new Iranian government to actually come here and try to raise capital for these big investments. And that's, um, I mean, he's looking for about $150 billion with a B worth of investments to pump back into um, Iran. So he, he's got to come up against some pretty harsh objections in his sales pitch, yeah? Oh, yeah. Now, what's interesting about him is he worked for some big players. He worked for McKinsey. He worked for Citigroup. Hmm. Um, he, he helped Citigroup grow their foreign investment division. So he knows what he's doing. 
Um, and if I was sitting on an investment fund right now, I would look hard at invest in Iran. I think you'd get some good returns. There's a couple of ifs out there. Um, but like anything in investing, the bigger risk you take, the biggest reward you stand to make. So I know that that there are people listening right now that are just clenching their teeth in anger that we're actually talking about investing in Iran. How could we justify such a horrible thing? A couple of things, right? So first thing is you have to look at global politics and specifically at the Middle East. We really only have two friends in the Middle East and we need another one. And what we don't want to have happen is have Russia make friends in the Middle East. So um, I, I've I've caught, I've, I've had the comments, I've had this discussion with others about, you know, how can we uh, support a country that was not that long ago we were in war with? Well, we have a history of that, right? The U.S. historically has fought countries beaten them and then turn them into our best buds. Uh, Germany and Japan are the first two thoughts that come to mind. So they, uh, this is another chance for us to do the exact same thing. And I promise you folks, you expose the Iranian people who have, have lived under hardship for, for 30 some odd years, you expose them to American capitalism and the way they think about things and what we do will change. Promise you. And, and along that, along that vein, yeah, there's a picture of, that's one thing that gets lost in all of the, in all of the hype between, is is the the humanity of the people involved in from my perspective you know because it's really easy to say you know the axis of evil and this and that but there are real people that really need to eat food over there there are kids starving to death yeah i i mean that's where i come from like i said i know that there's people in the audience or out there or just anyone who might get this forwarded to them that that well, the, the the thing that that I hear the most is how do we know we're not going to get hoodwinked? How do we know this isn't just some some contrived scheme? Yeah, it's a you, you need to go read the agreement. Um, basically, the moment we're not allowed to inspect stuff, everything gets reversed. Sanctions get slapped right back on. Um, the the biggest tell now, you know, the, the Iranian government is is has a dual consistency. You have the political side and you have the religious side. The Ayatollah it leads the religious side. The fact that the Ayatollah bought into this deal tells you a, a huge story. All right. Well, we will watch that unfold and y'all can um, tweet at us all of your anger. I'm <laughs> at James on the second and at Mark underscore liqueur. Um, let's move over to India, but uh, bridging the gap with Nigeria. This is an interesting story about uh, beyond oil, India needs to reimagine its ties with Nigeria. Yeah, and and this is a great story. And it's, you know, when you think India and Nigeria, you go, well, they don't have a damn thing in common. And that's actually not true, right? They were both um, um, under British rule. They both speak the uh, British version of English. Um, they're about the same size. Um, they both want to be, um, you know, uh, world leaders as far as their economic growth. Um, and then they have uh, existing trade in place, a good bit of an existing trade. Now, the interesting thing about the trade that's in place is it's kind of lopsided. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, Nigeria exports 99% of, of their, I mean, 99% of the exports to India is oil. And it's about $16 billion. Whereas India ships good to Nigeria at only about $2.8 billion. So there's a bit of imbalance there. Right? Okay, can, that, can you all right, slow down for, for the neophytes among us, me? Um what exact can you break that down a little bit? Um, yeah, so so these two countries are forming partnerships. Now, unfortunately, right now, um, they actually they actually put a, a um, agreement in place, a de declaration of strategic partnership. Unfortunately, right now, it's a biased. 
where one of the countries actually benefits much more from the agreement than the other one. So right now, um, India is benefiting more um, because Nigerians exporting, you know, 15.6 billion dollars worth of oil to them, whereas Nigeria is only important 2.8 billion dollars from India worth of goods. Got it. Yeah. So, um, but it's 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 gonna be interesting to see where this goes. It's um both countries have to clean up corruption. Both countries are in the process of doing it. You know, we talk about Nigeria all the time, how their president's taking names and kicking butts, which we both love. Um, India has some of that too. They're a little bit further down that path, but corruption is a, a big limiter in, in their world too. So, you know, it, it's basically two countries that see they have so much in common that they decided to partner together and see if they can help each other grow, which is just great. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I think I was just reading that that point right here. No one is forcing India to take an active role in accompanying Nigeria's social and civic development, but considering the commonalities, it would be a shame not to do so. Right. And and like, you, you know, the, the final, the biggest benefit of this will be the people of both countries. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of people in India. Um, a lot of people. Lot of people in population's India. growing like crazy too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, coming on to the domestic front, what is the Alaska LNG project? We break it down. Part one from K two K T O O Public Media up there in Alaska. Yeah, this is a big deal in Alaska from a from a um, not a political but from an economic point of view. Um, you know, with the price of crude being low and the um, more mature reserves in Alaska aren't as profitable. So here's a way for the the the, the state to actually make some money and produce jobs for people. So they, they have this huge, what I would call a mega project going on, where basically they have to build, they have, they have a ton of natural gas first to begin with. Um, and now they want to sell it to Asia. But in order to sell it to Asia, they have to compress it to liquid, which is LNG, liquefied natural gas. So um, they have some some uh, big co- companies over there, ExxonMobil, a couple other ones are actually helping with this. And they're looking at this huge project where basically they're going to have to build the pipeline to bring the gas um, to the facilities to compress it. Then they have to build the terminal, the compression equipment to compress it down to gas. And they have to build a terminal to offload it to uh, vessels so it can be shipped to Asia and be sold. So um, you're looking at a ton of jobs being created. Um, you know, it's, I think it's they about say a, a giga project is what they call it. They call it a giga project. Yeah. That's a good word. Um, you know, it's a $65 billion, uh, just in the liquefaction part. And that's not counting the pipeline and, and you know, all the compressor stations and everything else. I think ConocoPhillips is over there. Help has a piece of that as too. Um, but you know, just really cool thing now so far, knock on wood, politics have not gotten in the way. And this looks like this project would go forward, which is good. Right. Well, that was some of the other links around this story. I, I selected this one, but some of the other headlines were, you know, among talks about pipeline, uh, some are asking, should we build it? And yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pipeline is the safest way to move almost anything around. Yeah. Yeah. So in in the geographic uh, it's kind of crazy because it says um, it, it will bring from the northern slope down to Nikiski on the Kenai Peninsula for exporter for export to buyer uh, to buyers in Asia. So how are, you you can't do that by rail, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. So they, they're it's it, so people think of Alaska. It's one of the projects a lot of people think of is Alaskan pipeline. Now, what's different about the Alaskan pipeline and, and this project? Alaskan pipelines moves crude. So if you're in Alaska, crude has the consistency of pancake syrup, right? And it's very hard to move it when it's that thick. So you basically have to heat it up so you can move it. 
So the Alaskan pipeline is built above ground to protect the environment so that you won't be heating up the permafrost, which will what would happen if you bury that pipeline in the ground. A lot of people don't understand that. Actually, it's better for the environment to have it above ground. In this case, uh, gas comes out of the ground already cold. And then when they um, they compress it down to liquid, it's like, I think, minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit. So it turns really cold. So they're going to actually bury this pipeline because it's going to be as cold or colder than the permafrost. So you won't even see this. You, you, you won't even notice it when they're finished. That's interesting. So I'm going to have to, I'm taking a note down here because um, uh, let's see, photo. Um, yeah, th- there's some really great pictures of, you know, the elk up there grazing next to those above ground oil pipelines. <laughs> um, so I'll throw those in the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash TW35. On to ExxonMobil and Chevron to your favorite companies, Mark. Swirling, Actually, our, swirling, our two, swirling. Yeah, two of my favorite companies. Um, and this is an article in Seeking Alpha written by Gary Golnick. And he's basically saying how their stocks could suck and bottom out. There's some truth in here. There's some facts in here. He, he, you know, Chevron, even though Chevron's a super major and they do everything upstream, midstream, downstream, Chevron is predominantly an upstream company. Um, so, you know, Chevron is going to suffer until the price of crude comes back. Now, Exxon, however, Exxon is a strong downstream component. In fact, you know, I don't know if we mentioned this in the last show, but year over year, their petrochemicals division has grown 62%. Mm-hmm. That's, that's crazy I growth. Think, I, I think this specific number is is their year over year profit <laughs> or revenue. Right, right. They're, they're, one, they're, one of those two. I, I have to be more precise, but right. it's insane. Yeah. And so, and, and of course, the reason is that is a raw feedstock, which is crude natural gas, is dirt cheap right now. So um, I, I take a longer view on Chevron. I think for the next quarter or two, they're, 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 their earnings are going to be in the in the toilet. Um, but I think they'll come right back. And, and you know, I say that they just released uh, earnings uh, for third quarter just recently, and they did really well. Um, and they did that for a bunch of reasons. They had some big sales, and they got rid of some stuff, and they had some um, um, stuff that they wrote off for last quarter but but still the last quarter was good exxon i'm sorry exxon's gonna do well uh, you know exxon may not have the rocket growth it had right after the exxon mobile merger but they're gonna continue to do well so um you know as always folks don't take our investing advice no, we're not professional not. stocks investors but you know i part of this article I, there's some truth in but part of it i just don't see happen so um we were having a separate conversation about talent and things like this and some companies doing things that they should have done, um, but they're choosing not to. Uh, is Chevron fall into that conversation? And can you um, tell the people what I'm talking about? Yeah. So um, Chevron should have actually laid off more employees than they have. And the reason, and, and because of that, their stock will suffer, right? Their balance sheet will suffer for that. The reason they're not laying off more people, I think, um, it's not like the CEO of the Chevron calls me every week and discusses business plans. But the reason I think they have not laid off as many as they should have is they know that when the price of oil rebounds, they need that talent. And if they lay it off, they won't have it. Um, so, it, you know, I, I think short term Chevron stock may suffer a little bit more because of that. You watch when the price of oil rebounds and watch what they'll, they'll take off. Yeah. So uh, always that long term focus that we hit on um, all the time. Um, so this is the next story that I brought out. I brought it out because uh, people just flip out when these things happen. Um, so I'll just get out of the way here and read the headline. This is why we drill. Chinese company aims to buy Texas oil fields. 
Yeah, just the way that title is written, it's a little bit inflammatory. So this is nothing new. I actually um, have a client that's an investment company on the Upper East Coast, and they have a lot of Chinese money right now, and they're looking to buy stuff in the oil field, right? So I've done some advisory work for them. I mean, it's been, it's been going on for at I can remember stories as long as two or three years ago at this point, especially when yeah. the Eagle Ford was really going. I mean, Chinese money in the oil field is nothing new. I, I, I don't know why this is getting the attention it is, but they're, around the uh, social networks, um, people are coming out in spades. Yeah. So what's happened is, is people are just assuming, oh, the Chinese are buying American oil. They could ship American oil to China. They could use it for their advantage. It's not fair. We shouldn't let Chinese company do this. Dudes. And dudesses, that's not how it works. So first thing, <laughs> right. they buy in stuff in American cash. They have an American dollars to spend, right? So that money stays here in the U.S., which means there's at least a couple of jobs created somewhere along the line. The other thing is when they invest in these fields, it's just an investment. These aren't oil and gas guys. These are investment guys, and they're looking to make a money. Um, and even if it was oil and gas people, and even if they want to ship it to China, they can't. It's against the law. We cannot export our crude. So they're looking to step in, invest a low amount of money, and then turn around and flip it and make some money, just like they were, if they were buying um, amusement parks or just, just like any good, you know, red-blooded American would right. in any other case, trying to flip something and get a profit. Don't think we don't have American investments in China. Uh, you know, so this is this isn't anything that pumps money into the oil field, especially right now, is a good thing. I cannot agree more. Which brings me to the next one, which I could not disagree more. Um, from Grist, uh, you know, I'm throwing this in here. Fossil fuel companies aren't just bad for the climate; they're bad for investments. Which one do you want? Of those, would you like to tackle? I, I actually got a little upset. You just included this thing, right? This is this is what I try not to do. Is is um, help spread misinformation. But, but if we don't take... include it, then we can't take it down. And, <laughs> All right, and, so let me and take it spreads. You can take the climate side. I'll take the investment side. So um, historically, if you look at oil and gas stocks, especially in the super majors, they do better than the S&P 500. So, um, I, you know, I've been investing in oil and gas uh, since, shoot, since the early 90s. Um, and I've done, I've done very well uh, with that. Um, the companies, just because they're oil and gas companies, you, you got to take that part out and realize they're out to do business. They have shareholders. They want to increase shareholder value. They want to pay dividends. Um, you know, it's not, there's not a lot of public companies that are still paying dividends. There's a lot of oil and gas companies that pay dividends. So from an investment side of the house, I totally disagree. Just like anything else, uh, the oil and gas companies have a spot in your portfolio if you're an investor. I'm I'm even trying to find numbers. Oh, there's some numbers. I'm trying to figure out why why they're even saying this. Well, I can tell you why because I, I read this. They're basically saying now. It, it, here's here's a perfect example. So they're talking about how uh, the global consensus is we can't let global warming get above two degrees um, centigrade, right? And so that sixty to eighty percent of the fossil fuel reserves have to stay in the ground, or we'll hit that two degree number. So first thing is those numbers are bullshit. Somebody use some pseudoscience, put this together. Nobody knows what two degrees Celsius will do to the earth. Um, the 68% of the fossil fuel reserves, they're talking about carbon emission. You can absolutely use fossil fuels without releasing carbon. We, we do it here in the States and Europe all the freaking time. Um, you so can you, actually use fossil fuels to reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, you can. They actually, actually, one of the new things that's going on right now is deep carbon injection for well stimulation. So basically, companies are taking carbon out of the air and injecting it underground where it will stay forever. Um, and the other thing is you have to understand global warming is not new, 
right? Think of all the ice ages. Well, what's the opposite of an ice age? A global warming period. The Jurassic period, uh, the amount of carbon in the air is four times what it is now. And the, the world was a warmer place, right? When all the dinosaurs were around. So the actual issue is global warming is natural. It's, it's happened numerous times on this planet. It will happen in the future. It's happened in the past. The issue that nobody can figure out yet is, is man's activity increasing the speed that we move to global warming? And the truth is, right now, we do not have enough data to say yes or no. We will have enough data in about another 50 years. Um, but you know, th the reason they're saying that it's not a good investment is they're saying that companies won't be able to get the oil out of the ground or the uh, petro uh, petroleum out of the ground because of global warming, in which case – Companies like Chevron, and Exxon. So, go so, so let me let me just jump in here. So basically, what they're trying to say, because I only see let let's see one thing in here about overall stock growth and performance. So, so it's basically uh, eight hundred thousand words of emotion with one statement about a financial reality. Well, they're saying that that you know twenty years from now, Exxon and Chevron won't be able to get oil on the ground, so they're they'll go. Out of business, well, it, it, business yeah, well, and that's it, wrong. If 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 they win, then then uh, they are correct. But here's the reason that I brought this out because you know that uh, I you know I had Alex Epstein on my last show. Um, big fan of his book, you know, the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and just listened to the open letter that he read, or I'm sorry, that he wrote to the fossil fuel industry. It's in the last chapter. And he, he lists off six different points that I just wanted to bring out here because I think that that's, and that's why I brought this article out, like I said, because it's so easy for us to just kind of, oh yeah, there's those people over there and we're just going to ignore them. Well, if we keep doing that, we're going to ignore them in, into, ignore ourselves into non-existence, right? Um, and I think the problem, and, and he hits on it here, is that, is it's even couched in some of the things that we talk, the way that, that we talk about things in the industry. And just naturally, we, we concede the moral high ground as if, as if the renewable future is, is the ideal that we all should strive for, right? And so the, the six points that he makes here is not mentioning the word oil on home pages. And he mentions that it's been true of Exxon, Shell, and Chevron in the past. And what does that imply? That we're ashamed of our product, right? Um, focusing attention on everything but our core product. Again, we're ashamed. Praising attackers as idealistic. And he says this implies that your attackers are pursuing a legitimate ideal. And if we, if we look at the natural consequence of stopping fossil fuel production and exploration, then we are by definition, putting people's lives at risk because human life only gets better the more fossil fuels we use. And so even by, by acknowledging, say, oh, they, well, they have good ideals. Well, that, that just says, well, yeah, because we're a temporary um, sort of necessary evil, if you will. Apologizing for your environmental footprint. This implies something, there's something inherently wrong in energy production um, there's two more. So spending most of your time on the defensive, this implies you don't have something positive to champion. And then I love this one, criticizing your opponents primarily for getting their facts wrong without refuting their basic moral argument. This implies that this implies that the argument is right, but that your opponents just need to identify your evils more precisely. And I actually laughed out loud when, when, I, when I read that because this kind of an article from Grist is a perfect example 
of of how the other side, as in the anti-fossil fuel movement, wins with all of the all of this emotional hyperbole without the industry stepping in and saying, here are the facts and here's human life and here's how it gets better. You used to die when you were 30. Now you, you, know, you can live into your 70s. That's all due to fossil fuel growth. And yeah. you know what I mean? And, and I think you mentioned a statistic to me a week or two ago about how hospitals are 90% fossil fuels. Yeah, so you go to an emergency room, almost 9% of everything in there came from fossil fuels. And I'll tell you something else a lot of people don't understand about climate. So death from climate issues, right, has been part of humanity forever. In the last 50 years, as a whole, on the, the entire globe, we have reduced climate-based deaths by 89%. Right. And that is because now people have heat, right? People have running water, and all that All that ties back to, to fossil fuels. Um you know, and I like Alex Epstein's um, point that we inherently don't question um, the accuracy of of literally the 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 basis that the fossil, the anti fossil fuel people stand on. Um, you know me, James. I'm I am the one guy that will raise his hand and go, no, 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 you're wrong about that, and right. just stick to the facts. Right. But I, I will say this much about our industry: we have ignored um, the other side for too long. Right? It's it's we're heads down. It's a bunch of engineers. It's time for us to stand up and and not get political. Right? Not not get derogatory. No. Here are the facts. the facts. Yeah, yeah. Here are the facts. The simple facts of nature are that mother, you know, mother nature actually wants to kill us. And, and, and the best way that human life flourishes is by, by basically not subduing the earth, but, you know, but, but creating environments in which human lives can, you know, can like, shoot, we live in Texas. We have air conditioners, right? Yeah, I think I would die without air conditioners. <laughs> right, for sure. right, right. In, in the most basic fundamental um, things, and, and he starts off the book with a story about you know, a, a hospital in Africa where where a, a child dies prematurely because they didn't have electricity at that time. Right. And and so and so when you t when as soon as you said, you know, we need to leave sixty to eighty percent of the fossil fuels in the ground. I mean, that's the equivalent of saying, you know, we need to. It's it's the most anti-human philosophy well, you can think of it's, because it's it's like saying we need to put eighty to ninety percent of the living people in the ground. Well, it's it's also a made up number. I mean, it's literally just a made up number that it's gotten spread around because of the proliferation of social media and people take it to heart. Anyway, let's move. Yeah, let's move. All right, thanks for that soapbox. I had to get on it. All right, um, so we got a we got a great comment um, from from Corey Roslins Roslansky. Yeah, Corey Roslansky um, at uh, is it S O R Soro Cap? Yeah, Source Rock Capital. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but um, he did he did point out something. So James, big fan of the podcast. You and Mark cover quite a lot of topics in geographical areas. You always say um, you like it when people point out mistakes, but I'm too polite to call it a mistake. Uh, <laughs> no, just call it call it call it like it is. Call what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've just uh, I have. I have a note on episode 34. Tom Corbett is no longer the P uh, Pennsylvania governor. It is now Tom Wolf. May I suggest looking into the current Pennsylvania governor's tax plan, especially severance tax on natural gas production? Tom Corbett had his ups and downs, but I certainly agree with Mark that he helped the shale boom in this area. A lot of people here are concerned 
that Governor Wolf's plan will deter future growth. And then he, um, you know, says some other things. So thank you for that comment. And then it was gr- a great comment because right here we have a story um, from eenews.net. Pennsylvania drillers adjust to life under a governor they opposed. Yeah, it's um, this new governor is coming out swinging. Uh, he's already proposed from the legislature a severance tax on natural gas production. So they could basically tax it at the wellhead. Now, right now, um, gas is uh, dirt cheap, right? The producers of gas are, are, are the good ones are making money, but they're not making a lot of money. You add another layer of tax, and uh, and Corey is absolutely right. It's going to it's going to start putting the brakes on Pennsylvania's natural gas production. It's it's ludicrous, right? Because the industry already pays enough taxes to begin with. The economy is booming in Pennsylvania because, and the state economy is doing well too because all the taxes they're already paying, they're pumping into the system. And then when you read this article, and and I hate when I see this, and this is this is people that um, don't have the experience maybe that that you know others have, but what they talk about, and this is classic politics. The governor says we're going to take this tax and we're going to put it in education. So if you're in Pennsylvania, how could you say no to that? How could you not want right. to use money to help your kids? What happens? 100%? Do you hate children? Yeah. What happens a hundred percent of the time? I've seen this all over the U.S. Is when something like this gets passed, they do in fact take the money and they put it in education. But then they take out other sources of education. So the education fund is net. It doesn't grow at all. They just then use that other money for something else. Usually it's something like environmental protection or um, renewable fuels or, or whatever. And, and it I've seen it over and over again. And I promise you, if this severance tax get passed in Pennsylvania, you watch. That money will go to education, but then later they'll uh, take some other f- forms of funding for education away and use that for whatever their political motives are. Yeah, yeah, just just like the lotto, right? So let yeah, me yes, you. yeah, exactly, just like the lotto, just like the lotto. Yeah, it all goes towards education. Um, so let me ask you this though: severance tax at the wellhead is that normal? It's it's normal when you when you want to do a severance tax, right? I'm, I'm talking thing, about like what does it look like across the the country? Is is this done in other states? Yeah, it's it is done in other states. Um, but it's usually one of the – it's usually what happens is the taxes are agreed upon beforehand. The industry then grows around it because it can manage its risk. It knows what its cost could be. What you don't want to do to an industry, especially one in this low crude price market, is do that up front, have everything set up so these companies know what taxes are going to pay, and then another governor comes in and they add some more taxes that nobody knew was going to happen. Right, So it's going to change people's business models, and it's not going to change people's business models for the better. So Governor Tom Wolf is the Mark Zuckerberg of of American government then because um because that's exactly what happened to Facebook. They're like, "Come on in everybody. Come on in. Yeah, you'll get in front of all of your fans and all of your followers and you'll be able to advertise to them." And then they were like, "Oh, yeah, by the way, you know that 100% of people that see your stuff? Yeah, now it's 1% and you get to pay us all the money that we tell you to ma- to pay us in order to get in front of those people now." That's a darn good analogy. Yeah. The, well, thank you. Um so, well, damn. Governor Tom Wolf, don't just stop all that nonsense. All right, um, we're going to close on a high note, though. Big data and big oil, GE systems and sensors drive efficiencies for BP. You got a lot of clicks on this one. Yeah, it's it's a great article, and it's you know I haven't released my predictions for 2016. This will be a part of it. Um, I can tell you that already. <laughs> so um, this is a good article showing how GE's partnered BP to do a lot of stuff around big data. 
unfortunately, in oil and gas industry, because they're risk adverse and they don't like change, the way stuff gets maintained now is they wait for it to break, wait for a pump to break, then they go change a pump. Well, that process means there's downtime, which adds cost. What BP's working with uh, GE on, on, the, on is predictive analytics. So basically, they have sensors and all these pumps and motors and production facilities, and they're looking for changes in vibration, changes in temperature at the bearing level, whatever. And they take all this data, and they can predict that that pump's going to go out before it goes out. So then they go change it before it goes out, so there's no downtime. How cool is that? It's, yeah, I like, their, I like their marketing slogan here. Um, by analyzing the data, it is possible to pursue the, quote, power of 1%. Yeah, big data is, is getting ready to be huge in oil and gas, and it's going to be huge for the next, you know, we call that last year in our predictions. Uh, here's an article that kind of supports that, and it's going to continue to be huge. And the funny thing about big data and oil and gas is oil and gas historically has always been a big data industry. You know, think of the geosciences out there, all the petabytes of data of, you know, geographic surveys, but they don't know how to use it, right? It's all siloed. So you go to somebody, even somebody like ExxonMobil, a lot of stuff still done in Excel spreadsheets. Well, how can somebody look at all that work that's done and see if there's some efficiencies? What the problem with big data and oil and gas is the actual analytics. And so um, there's a couple of big companies out there that are just about cracked the code. Um, GE is one of them out there. Um, and then there's a handful of companies that are chasing this, knowing that it's going to happen. Um, some very big technology companies. So the analytics is the secret. We've always had big data. We just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so the power of the 1% is a GE term, which states that efficiencies of only 1% can make a dr dramatic impact across the $32.3 trillion of relevant sectors. Yeah. I'll take 1% of 33 some odd trillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and, and that's what I'm talking about. What I've, what I talk about, you know, this industry, well, what are oil prices? Why do you care? Well, I don't know. It's $32 trillion, people. Go find your million. It's out yeah, there. Yeah, let me throw a fact out there. So just the onshore projects, not offshore, onshore projects in the world uh, for 2015 is going to be about $11.69 trillion worth of spend by the oil and gas industry. That's almost $12 trillion. That's crazy. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a, that, that is a nice pie. Go and get your slice and get nice and fat and happy um, based on your philosophy, not, not, not on the scare tactics of, uh, of social media. Um, all right. So we've got some extras in here, too. Um, why don't you talk through this, uh, just real quick to this first extra because it's a slide share that you did selling to the oil and gas industry. Yeah, so it's it's basically 10 rules. If you want to sell to the oil and gas industry, here's the 10 things you need to do. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a funny story about this. I did this because I was tired of people me asking, this, asking me this question. So I put this together so that when people ask me the question, I just send them to the slide share. Yeah, <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, and so uh, what is – give us one – what would be one or two of the – okay, they're all important rules, but these are the real – mortal sin commandments yeah so number one you want to be a consultant not a salesperson right that's that's the biggest thing number two you really need a strategic plan um, you need to control the deal so you need to set the agenda and then there are things in oil and gas that's so unique like you need to understand the politics the guys that you're talking to you may think may actually be the buyer most probably not there's a whole team of in flux that are actually the buyer and you need to understand where that is um, often a deal gets stuck somewhere lowered down so you know, when when you're looking to sell to oil and gas industry, you need to have some executive buy-in at the top. Not somebody that you're going to bug, but when your deal gets stuck, somebody can ping and go, hey, it's gotten stuck in legal. Can you help me? Um, things like managing risk. 
right? That's huge in this industry. You need to have, understand how to manage risk in the sales process. As you have taught me. Yeah, yeah. And then heightened time awareness. The sales cycles in oil and gas are extremely long, probably average about a year, which means that you need to be aware that whatever you're doing now is going to affect your income as a salesperson a year from now. So if you're not doing anything now because you have all these deals coming in, a year from now, you'll have no pipeline. You'll have no money coming in. And it's your fault because you don't have a heightened time, time awareness. Yeah, that is a really great point. There's a lot of people standing on the sidelines right now doing nothing, talking about, well, yeah, once prices rebound, then we'll, then we'll really go and after this thing. And I, I'm not sure how you plan on being in the right position when oil prices rebound by standing on a sideline in the meantime. Yeah, if you're in sales, you need to be moving right now. Um, you actually, 2016 budget will be released shortly. Right now, everybody's in 2016 budget yeah. planning stage. Pounding phones. Yeah, you, you're in sales, you need to at least try to get a line item on that CapEx budget for next year because if not, you're toast. Absolutely, and if you get a big enough CapEx budget, our second, I'm um, just throw this as extra because uh, Mark knows that one of my, one of my personal goals in life is is to buy a, a G5 or G6 or whatever model that we're at by the time I can afford one. Um, but what it, what it, what you need to know about buying a private jet? So um, I'm sure that applies to to most people listening to the show. My, my, <laughs> I mean myself definitely. In I don't know however long it's going to take. It's going to happen though. You know, I, I've never owned a private jet, but I have actually flown on a couple. And you know the coolest thing about the private jet? You just pull up to it in your car and get off and get on That's the plane. That's what I'm talking that, about. That, that That is so cool. That's what I'm talking about. All right, so there we got the weekly onion man overjoyed. He no longer has to purchase entire day's worth of egg muffins in the morning. Um, I don't know about that marketing move by McDonald's, but uh, it got him some play for a minute or two. Um, so that's in the show notes at tribrocket.com forward slash TW. 35. And then we've got two events uh, we're going to talk about here. So IPA 86 annual meeting Sunday, November 8th through 10th at the Ritz Carlton in New Orleans. Yeah, I wish I could go. That's that's it. IPA is a great organization, you know, Independent Petroleum Association of America. This is their annual meeting where they set the direction for next year. Uh, you actually can go to the meeting um, and to the event without being a member, but you're not allowed in the private sessions. Membership is ridiculously cheap. I'm a member. It's if, like twenty five dollars um, a year. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in the oil and gas industry, join IPAA. I mean, it's just it's it's a good organization, and they and they do a lot of work politically uh, in this country to make sure that the rights of the oil and gas industry are represented fairly to Congress. So your money goes for a good cause. But I wish I could be in New Orleans there. It's um, just didn't work out this year. We'll try to make it next year. All right, and then uh, hitting on the operational excellence again. Operational excellence in oil and gas, November 9th through eleventh at Houston City Center. Yep. So uh, operational excellence, we think, is going to be a major business driver for next year and, and for the future. We've talked about that before. Here's an event built all around operational excellence in oil and gas. So if you're a leader um, of in, in the oil and gas industry and you're looking at uh, your organization, you're looking at where you can wring out efficiencies and improve performance, um, improve retention, you need to understand and learn operational excellence. And this event is a great place to start. Yeah, I was I was just looking at the website trying to, and so it looks like put on by the people at Oil and Gas IQ, which um, yep. great resource, and so that should be a good show. Um, we got a review, Mark. Whoa, cool! <laughs> I know I've been begging for was two it a weeks. hater review? Uh, no, no, it wasn't a hater review. Although we welcome all reviews, including haters. We love the haters. Uh, hug your haters, as Jay Bear would say. All right, so a must listen by Kendall Campbell. Um, James and Mark are the perfect mix of resources to keep you informed about oil and gas and start your morning off right. 
or evening or that's the great thing about podcasts. You can consume them wherever. I'm, this is not her. All right. So they address uh, current events, top issues and questions relating to the industry and break it down into easy and understand, uh, understandable conversations. I look forward to having this as part of my weekly routine. Exclamation point, Kindle. Thank you, Kindle, for that five star. Um, Mark, I think you said you connected with her on LinkedIn. So, um, so yeah, we, we've got to we've, we've got to do lunch or something. Um, yeah, Kendall, thanks so much for the review. And folks, look, we don't charge you anything for this. Um, we, we, we're, we're trying to get sponsors though. <laughs> we're working on sponsors. Um, but this is a lot more work than you think it is. And we do this for you, for our, for our, our listeners. So can you do us a favor and take the minute and a half it takes to go to iTunes and give us a review? Um, basically iTunes is a big search engine. The more reviews we get, the more people can find us and the bigger we can grow our audience and the better it is for everybody. Yeah. And on that point of search engines. Okay. So, and I've been tracking this. I just hit Mark with it a couple of days ago when I discovered it, I've been uh, Googling this week in oil, um, pretty much every week since we started. And we are now in the middle of, uh, of page one. Oh, cool. We're on page one. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Page one. Gunning for Ernst and Young at the top. I think we we'll can, get them. I think we can get them. Oh, we will. I, you know, I just need to go and load up the uh, the the bio of the show with a bunch of keywords. I'm about to do that. <laughs> um, so, all right, and so we got that review. Thank you. If you would like to give us a review, it's tribrocket.com forward slash tw reviews. Tribrocket.com forward slash tw reviews. Um, I mentioned sponsorship. Uh, we're, we're we're talking to. One company right now looks like we might have an underwriting sponsorship, um, you know, on the books. But why don't you fill in everybody on what we're talking about when we talk about sponsorship, Mark? Yeah. So if you if you're a company and you want to get your message out into the oil and gas industry, you can sponsor our show. Now we won't just take anybody. We have to actually believe in your product or your service. Um, but reach out to us. We have a, two sponsorship slots left. We have one that we're in contractual um, negotiations right now. We have two two spots left. So, you know, if you want a way to drive some uh, good oil and gas traffic to your business, reach out to us and we'll be, see if we can help. Yeah. So you can email Mark, Mark at uh, mark.lacour at modalpoint.com. And then I'm James at tribrocket.com. And then also our contact information is on the show notes pages as well. Let's wrap on the LinkedIn group. We've been having uh, some new people joining and some good conversations going on. Yeah. So it, folks, if you listen to the podcast, Go join our LinkedIn group. They're kind of joined at the hip. This is a way for you to um, meet your fellow peers in the oil and gas industry that, that also listen to the podcast, uh, trade information, get some feedback, advice, get help on stuff. Um, I've, I've watched James do some technical writing for some of our members, you know, for free. So it's a great group. It's We have a highly engaged audience, and, and we love to, to see and see if we can help you, you know, with your career. And not only the people uh, j- to join, which you can do at triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. That'll just take you straight to the LinkedIn page. Um, also, uh, uh, a call out to everyone who's listening who's in the group. Let's get some conversations uh, a little more. I, I see I see Larry Shep, uh, Shepstone. Is that what it is? Um, we, we, we love approving uh, his stuff. Let's get some more conversations from some more people. Um, yeah. you, you know, and, and folks, if you're a member of the group and you're stuck with something, ask the group, right? If you're a salesperson and you want to contact in Halliburton, ask the group. This is what we're here for. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, I mean, you know, tribe rocket is, is called tribe rocket because tribe is the modern 
marketing term for the community that you build around your brand. And we want this to be a community. So that's a really great point. Yeah. If you're a salesperson, you're stuck. If you're, you know, a new geologist and you need a, and you need an answer, uh, you know, from a seasoned vet, whatever the case is, throw it out to the group. I mean, yeah, we, we, could, group. we could have all, you know, we could be the Wikipedia of oil and gas for each other, right? Oh yeah, if, and if like I know a lot of our group members, we have some very very talented oil and gas people in our membership. So almost anything you ask, I bet there's somebody out there who can answer the question. Awesome. Well, I hope I see some questions this week. Um, it looks like 45 minutes is becoming the show length. Um, uh, I want to apologize. I haven't heard any complaints yet. So um, it, on that, anything else, Mark? No, uh, folks, do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. I talk to myself, but not like that.